0: You know, one of the most incredible things about God is that He seeks us to be His worshipers. And uh, before we go to Psalms 100, as we continue our series in the Psalms, I want you to go to um, John chapter 4, and I want to just read an interaction between... Jesus and a Samaritan woman, which is one of the most unlikely conversations that's ever recorded in the Bible. Because Jews hated Samaritans, Samaritans hated the Jews, and Jesus encounters a very incredibly immoral woman, and he gives her the secret to life. And Matthew chapter 9 would tell us that after she went back into the village, she shared that secret. And the fields were like white unto harvest as you saw the whole town coming out to meet Jesus. See if you can pick this up. Verse 7. It says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me to drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me to drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. It was worse than that. You know, when, one time when a Samaritan village wouldn't receive Jesus, John and James wanted to call down fire from heaven to barbecue him. Okay, that's how, that's how deep the animosity was. So it's being understated here. It says, Jesus answered, answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw from, with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Uh, notice the Samaritans claimed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their own. And they had this well that he had actually dug. And uh, he says, uh, who gave us the well, to and he drank from it himself, his sons, and his cattle. Big stamp of approval here. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So Jesus is talking metaphorically, and he's talking very eternally, spiritually. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw And Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one with whom you are now living is not your husband. This you have said truly. Now I don't know about you, if you met a complete stranger and he revealed that to your life, you would get a little nervous, right? The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she brings up the whole subject of worship. Isn't that interesting? The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, she's expecting an answer. Do you worship in Samaria, or do you worship in Jerusalem? Jesus said, to are woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must, must worship in spirit and truth not the place. You worship in spirit and truth. It says, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That was his claim to be Messiah. But it had everything to do with the worship of God. Now, from this interchange, I want us to go away with one thought. Worship is not a place, but it is, has everything to do with two persons, the worshiper and the one being worshipped, or the worshiper and God. It's not about the house of worship. It's about the heart of worship. It's about the worshiper worshiping God in spirit and truth, not necessarily about form and ritual and place, although that can be important. If you come with a heart of worship, if you're worshiping in spirit and truth, you come to church and you express that, praise God. You can do it at home. You can do it when you're in a trial. You can do it when you're having pain and suffering. You can always be in a worshipful attitude towards God. Because true worship, verse 23, will be, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the, fa- for the fact is, for such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. He seeks us out to be his worshipers. Because he knew we would worship him, so he entered into a relationship with us, he drew him to uh, us to himself, because true worship is an issue of the heart, it's the issue of the mind and spirit of a re, uh, redeemed person in love with God, it's the essence and expression of a grateful, redeemed, and forgiven sinner towards the one who has redeemed him, toward his sovereign, who he recognizes as the one who is over him. You know, everybody is under authority, whether you recognize it or not is the issue. You're always under authority. And ultimately, we are always under God's authority. And the question is, are you going to worship him in spirit and truth, or are you going to discard him and not? Worship is the ultimate expression of a thankful heart towards God. It's the ultimate expression of someone who Realizes the depths of God's grace and the mercy and forgiveness that he's extended to us. Therefore, worship is at the very heart of our relationship with God. That's where it's at. It's not good enough to just know God. You know, everybody knows there's something out there, you know, the, the holy other or the, the, uh, the force or whatever. They know there's something beyond this, but we enter into a worship relationship Where we bow down, we submit to the one true God with joy, with reverence, with holiness, with with, uh, ecstasy, as we're going to see. Now, with that in mind, let's look at Psalms 100, and let's begin by reading it together. It's just a very simple psalm. It's five verses. Uh, I think it's one of the most, they used to call it the old 100th. It was so famous in Spurgeon's Day and the, the Day of the Reformers that they just called it the old, let's sing the old I 100. Don't, I don't know if it's to music right now, but it would be fun to sing it sometime. Don't ask me to lead it. That wasn't nice, Bill. <laughs> Listen to what he says. He says, notice it's an exhortation to the entire world. This is not just an exhortation to David or to Israel or whoever wrote the psalm. This is an entire exhortation to the entire planet, in fact, to the entire universe. It says, a psalm for thanksgiving. In other words, to remind you that you are to live with an attitude of thanksgiving toward the one true God. He, said, he says, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. come. Before Him, with joyful singing, know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. Boy, how we need to learn that today. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is how long? Everlasting. His faithfulness to all generations. Short, sweet. To the point. Now, as we look at this wonderful psalm, I want us to consider basically four areas of worship, each having 3 subpoints to it, and therefore I want us to look at the heart attitude of worship in verses 1 and 2, then the heart knowledge of worship in verse 3, then the heart practice of worship in verse 4, and then finally I want us to look at the one worthy of all worship in verse 5, why he is worthy of it. So let's begin by looking at the heart attitude of worship. Look at verses 1 and 2. Let's just read it again slowly. Shout joyfully to who? To the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Singing was joyful this morning, wasn't it? I was caught up in it. It was awesome. I love to come before the Lord with a joyful heart. Now, In this passage, the psalmist points out three things that show a believer's attitude about God and how that attitude should be expressed. In fact, he commands the whole earth. Get that into your head. God commands the whole earth. Why? We're going to see in a moment that he's the creator and sustainer of life. He's the one who gives life and breath. Therefore, he has the right to command his creatures to worship him. If you read the book of Revelation carefully, you realize even the trees and the plants and everything that has breath praises the Lord. Why? Because he's their creator, but we'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, he commands the whole earth to shout joyfully to the Lord. Love that song, shout, shout to the Lord, that we just sang. Love that thing. Why? Because worship is to be expressive. It's to be loud. It, I would even use the word bombastic almost. Uh, There's times for quiet worship and stuff and prayer, and and that's good. But worship itself should be an ecstatic experience, an exciting experience where we're really praising God and we're giving him everything our lungs can give him. Then he says, serve the Lord with what? Gladness. Not like, oh, man, do I have to do that again? Oh, God man i got to go to church it's sunday oh, i got to go to whatever it's that day again we shouldn't approach life like that it's serve the lord with gladness come before him with joyful singing and this is no mundane thing god our sovereign and our creator demands our worship he demands our enthusiasm shout joyfully to the lord he He demands our allegiance, serve the Lord with gladness. He demands our adoration, come before him with joyful singing. God's people should be ecstatic, not to worship, but to worship him. You know, just to go, oh, you know, so so many times people come to church and go, well, I really didn't like the music, or uh, whatever. You know, that's not their problem, that's your problem. If the music is doctrinally terrible and, and uh, heretical, that's one thing. If you can't enter into joyful singing and adoration of God wherever you are, whenever you are, that's a problem with you. That's a problem with the heart, isn't it? We're not the church critic. We're the worshipers who come to church to worship the one true God. God's people should be ecstatic about him. In fact, the whole world should be hopelessly in love with God for who He is and all He's done for them and all that He's given them to enjoy. Do you realize everything anybody has ever enjoyed in this life was created and offered to them by God? We pervert it and we make it sinfully ugly in many cases, but. Everything that's enjoyable in this life, which is most everything, came from God. He designed it. He created it. He sustains it. You know, it's us that mess it up. The world should be hopelessly in love with God. Even during the tribulation, the the time of God's wrath, John sees an angel flying in mid-heaven in Revelation chapter 14, says, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And the eternal gospel is this, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Isn't that interesting? The eternal gospel, you can see God in the creation. In fact, Romans, if you turn there for a second, in Romans chapter 1, he says you should clearly see God in the creation. When you're out hugging a tree, you should be thanking God for the fact that He created it, not that it's a tree. But that He created the tree. And in verse 18 of Romans 1, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why do they do that? Because men love the darkness, because their deeds are evil. Therefore, they suppress the truth, and they don't come to the light. And the light is this, he says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. You've got go to go a long way to sear your conscience, don't you? As with a branding iron, like it says in 1 Timothy 4. And he says, for God made it evident to them. Solomon tells us God has placed eternity in our hearts. That's why men are always trying to find a way, you know, Houdini You know, the great escape artist said that if there's a way out of whatever awaits me, I'll be back. Well, he's never come back, tragically. But uh, I don't know if Houdini, I don't think Houdini knew the Lord, but he never escaped the eternal judgment. But here, we can escape it. He says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they men are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him or honor Him or worship Him as God, or give thanks, which is at the heart of, thank, which is at the heart of worship, he says. But they became futile in their speculations, their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for in the image and the form of corruptible man and birds and forfeited animals and, Crawling creatures, snakes, something like that. Then, verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped. It always leads to worship, doesn't it? What's the most important thing in your life is what you will worship. It may be yourself, maybe money, it may be sex, booze, drugs, who knows? Men will worship a plethora, a pantheon of things. But they believed the lie, and they worshiped and served the creature. Notice, whom you worship is who you will serve. Remember what Jesus, you know, when Satan was tempting Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4? Remember the interchange where Satan goes, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And he showed them all, all their glory and their majesty. And, and Jesus says, no, be gone, Satan, because Who you worship is who you serve. Now, if you worship yourself, every morning you get up in the mirror and look at that person in the mirror and that's who you're worshiping, that's who you're serving. And you will serve, you'll carry out that philosophy of life in any given situation. If you look at that in the mirror in the morning and go, you know, what a good-looking creation of God. (laughs) I'm kidding. That was a joke. But anyway, if you go... Wow, you know, this is a day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. That will be how you face life that day. So easy to get our priorities all out of whack. You see, that's always been the shout out to the world. Worship God. Shout joyfully to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. And if that's to be true of the whole world, how much more should it be true of us as people? the sheep of his pasture, his church, the bride. You know, I love John Piper, the way he put this in his book, uh, Let the Nations Be Glad. Let me me just read you a small excerpt from his, uh, what would you call it, expose of missions. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. That's surprising to many of us. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Man is not worshiping God, therefore he's got to be brought into the worship of God, right? Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When, when this age is over and countless millions of redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, millions will be missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessary, it's is, it is temporarily necessary. But worship abides forever. Listen to this. This is one of the most profound statements I think I've ever read. He says, Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal in missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white hot enjoyment of God's glory. And how's that done? Through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the redemption that's found in Christ, through the salvation of That we have in Christ through transferring men from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Then he says. "Okay, the goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. Let me read that one one more time. It says worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions Because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. And then he he quotes Psalms 97.1, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Then he quotes again Psalms 67.3 and 4, which says, Let the people praise thee, O God, let all the peoples praise thee, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Then he summed this paragraph up by saying, Missions begins and ends with worship. Which I think is pretty profound. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. That's really our message, isn't it? The only way that happens is in Christ, isn't it? Because that's where the heart is transformed. That's where the heart of worship begins and it grows and it grows and it grows and it continues to grow till that day you are liberated in the freedom of the sons of God before the throne of God. Worship. How are we doing? You know, I had to examine my own heart all week, which is a horrible experience. But but uh I just realize more and more how much I need to worship with gladness, with joy, with, with a sense of God's presence, and, and really uh, spend that time in prayer, and really spend that time just rejoicing in the mundane things of life, because I tell you, life will roll over you if you forget about worship. It will just roll over you like a steamroller. So we see the hard attitude of worship. One who joyfully worships and serves the living God with an abundant heart of thanksgiving. Now let's look at, secondly, the heart knowledge of worship. And I wish I had ten sermons to give on this one verse. I'm not kidding you. He says in verse 3, Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Boy, drink those words in. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Beloved, do you realize how hard men fight to disregard the knowledge of this one verse alone? Entire intellectual community would roll over in their grave because they're dead in their trespasses and sins just hearing that verse. Psalms 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, What? there is no God. How does he know that? How does the atheist know that there's no God? how can he how can he even make that statement? Has he ever been omnipresent traversing the stars and the universe and looking under the sea and in the heart of the earth and the heart of the everywhere at one time and go yep, he's not here. I did that one time with a guy and he almost wanted to beat me up but it's true. How can man make such a stupid, outlandish statement? We're confined to space and time. God is presented in the Bible as omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. Omni meanings means all. Romans 1.21, we just read it. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but their foolish heart became darkened professing to be wise, they became fools. That pretty much defines our academia these days and our world and their thinking. You see, every humanistic philosophy and ism of man flies in the face of that verse and the true knowledge of God. But, you know, Hebrews 11.6 says it right when it says, when it says, and without faith, it's impossible to please him for those who come to him must believe what, that he is, that God exists, that he is who he says he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. And how do we seek him? Well, we seek him through coming into a worshipful relationship with him through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we seek God. And we seek him on our knees, with our hands raised praising Him and thanking Him for all that He's done, all that He will do, and all He will continue to do for all eternity. You see, the true worshiper knows that God is God. They know that He has made us, that He is our creator, and therefore we belong to Him. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture, His world, His creation. And it seems so simple, doesn't it? We come up with these outlandish theories and thoughts and explanations. You know, I remember Ben Stein in that uh, video, I think it was called Expelled. (laughs) He's talking to an atheist, and he said, Well, where did life originate? He said, Well, on the back of crystals. And he had the stupidest look on his face. I just thought, You know, that pretty much defines it. Because life did not come on the back of crystals. Where did the crystals come from? I mean, you know, it never answers the question. This answers the question. God created us. God has always existed. I am that I am. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was with God. He was in the beginning of beginnings before beginnings ever began with God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But, you know, it answers all those questions. But it seems just so simple. Because our raging intellect can't handle that. Where was I? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You must believe that he is. He is the rewarder of those who seek him. Instead, as I said, we come up with billions of years. And you know, the stuff they're claiming to happen in billions of years could have never happened in billions of years anyway. Spontaneous generation will never occur. It'll never happen. And... What happened before whatever spontaneously generated happened? Who put it here in the first place? There's no answer to that, except in the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God, period. Get that into your heads. (laughs) You know, this is a whole different context, but I love what Paul said to the educated beyond their intelligence, Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, he says, What? Know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify or worship God with your bodies. Because they were getting into Epicureanism and that kind of thing where it's like your spirit is eternal. Do what you want with your body. We're there again in 21st century America or around the world. But it is important, you are body, soul, and spirit. It is important that you belong to God, and what you do with your spirit, your body, and your soul means something. It's not where you make a division. Oh, yeah, I'm having an out-of-body experience here, and I'm an in-body experience here. You know, we don't have those things. In other words, he says to them, don't get caught up in the world's thinking, but worship God with everything you are. Know that he is God, and it is he who has made us, and it's he who has redeemed us to be his people, the sheep of his pasture. That is such a wonderful thing. Don't you, don't you like to think you're a sheep? I mean, I, there, there are times I would just like to crawl on Christ's shoulders. <laughs> you know, and have him carry me. I was almost there this morning, but... It's such a wonderful thought. We are one of Christ's little woolies. And he guides us, he directs us, he protects us, he looks over us. You know, and in a fallen world, sheep go through all kinds of problems too. That doesn't mean he doesn't love us. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Life's filled with trials. So, we see the heart attitude of worship. We see the heart knowledge of worship. In verse 3, let's look at the heart practice of worship. Verse 4. It says, enter his gates, and, and whoever wrote this would probably be talking in a tabernacle sense. I'm not sure the temple had been built at this point. Maybe, maybe it had, maybe it hadn't. Um, But enter his gates with thanksgiving. The idea is whenever you go into God's presence, it's with thanksgiving. And his courts with praise gives thanks to him, bless his name. That's what worship is all about. It's giving thanks to him. It's not like, yeah, I really worshipped. You know, I raised my hands, I did my thing, and, and wow, went away with an ecstatic experience. That may be part of it, but it's worshiping Him. Did you worship God, or did you just have a nice time at church? Did you really worship God? Did you really worship Him in spirit and truth? Are you rejoicing right now in God's Word? Think about it. You know, who am I really worshiping? Now, the word here for Thanksgiving could be thank offering, and, and especially in an Old Testament sense, but The NASB translators chose to emphasize the heart issue, a thankful heart. And that's at the core of true acceptable worship, isn't it? A heart of thanksgiving overflowing and overwhelmed with praise to God for all that He is, all that He's done, and all that He continues to do as He sustains us through this trial-filled life. You know, I... The longer I live, it seems like the more trials I go through. And if you live long enough, you'll probably enjoy that yourself. But life is full of trials. Jesus even promised in this world we'd have tribulation. He said, but take courage, I've overcome the world. You know, Paul talks about trials in Romans 8. And he says, all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So trials aren't an indication that God does not love you. It's an indication that He does love you, and He will bring you through it. And I think we need to really get that cemented in our our heads. But and uh, let me let me make an observation at this point, and it's this: Thanksgiving and praise are premeditated. They're premeditated most of the time. I'm not always, but but most of the time they're premeditated. They're Things we think on, things we allow our minds to dwell on, we ponder them, we meditate on them. You know, I was, one time I had the opportunity to talk to Ken Poor. This was years and years ago. He has passed away since. Great preacher, great, great, just great guy. One of the happiest guys I've ever met. But he said, you know, when he, got, when he gets in a funk, he said, uh, I would go in a room, close the door, and I'd just start saying, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And then I started screaming it out. Praise the Lord. And he said, you know, by the time I walked out of there, my focus was right. My direction was back to where it should have been. My mind was in a state of thanksgiving and praise. I mean, something as mundane as that. It, it, I think a lot of us need to sneak into a room and do that. Who knows? I remember when I worked at Safeway, I'd come home sometimes with raging headaches, and i lived live with three other guys, and we'd go in a room and we'd just start laughing. And you know what? The headache would be gone in ten minutes. It's weird, huh? Laughter is a good medicine. Well, I think even beyond that, worship and praise is the best medicine. Think about it. Paul was right when he exhorted the Philippians in Philippians 4. He said, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, if there be any excellence, anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. And the, the Greek word means to dwell, to pitch your tent on these things. This is where you put your home, on the things that are uh, true and honorable and lovely and pure. And In other words, think on Christ. You see, the person who ponders, who meditates on God and his word... And all that He's done for us will soon develop a heart of thanksgiving and praise. And as we enter God's presence, no matter where or how that might be, be, we'll be giving thanks to Him and blessing His awesome name. And all that name, you know, a person's name, like, you can say, well, I know Pastor Bob, but you probably really don't. If you knew me, you might not like me, but if you... (laughs) If you really knew me, you would know what makes me tick. You'd know what's going on in my life. You'd know the trials, the struggles, the joys, everything that that I am. Every, you know, all the attributes that, that uh, characterize my life, you would know those things. And that's what the name of God means. It means conclusively all that he is in every attribute. You know, there's great books by Tozer, by Pink, by... Uh, J.I. Packer on the Attributes of God that I'd suggest you read. They're just awesome books, amazing books. And that brings up our last point. We develop a heart of worship because, it, because the true worship, to, we develop a heart of worship because the true God is the one worthy of all worship. And verse 5 tells us some of the reasons why. Look at verse 5. He says, For the Lord is what? How often? All the time. That's a phrase that Pastor Ray started. And it's true. For the Lord is good, His loving kindness is everlasting. His faithfulness is to all generations. This verse tells us, first of all, that God is good. What? All the time. And why is He good all the time? Because it's not just who He is. What he does, it's who he is. God is goodness personified. Turn to Exodus 33 for a moment, second book in the Bible. Moses is leading the children of Israel from Egypt in the Exodus. And Moses has just about had it because these people are not easy to deal with. And he just says, You know, if you don't go with us, kill me, get me out of here, do something. Just, I can't take any more. And God says to him in verse 17 of Exodus 33, Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing for which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Oh, I love that. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. Show me who you are, God. Show me the wonder and majesty of who you are. And he had seen a lot up to that point. Notice what God says in verse 19. He said to him, I myself will make all my goodness. I will have all my goodness pass before you and will claim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. Well, the Lord passes before him in chapter 34, verse 5. It says... The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, and this is God describing himself. The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the grandchildren of the third and fourth generations. In other words, God is just and holy and righteous, and he will deal with sin if he is rejected. Notice Moses' response. Moses made made haste to bow low toward the earth and what? Worship. And I can just hear his worship as he repeats the name of God and blesses the name of God and, and is awestruck by the person of God. You see, not only does God do good, but goodness is one of his great attributes, is his glory, it's who he is. It's part of what makes him worthy of all our worship. He's always good. You know, Romans 8, 28 and 29 is based on that, right? Because God is always good. It says God works all things to for good to those who love him or called according to his purpose. For those he called, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And you know, you may go through a trial and you may never be the same because of that trial. But if you're walking close with God and you're worshiping God, you will come out of that more Christ-like. He can, will conform you more and more to the image of the person of Christ. And really, that's the ultimate good, isn't it? Because really, that's what's going to happen when we go to glory. We'll see him as he is, and we will be like him, 1 John 3 tells us. Then he tells us, verse 5, is loving kindness is everlasting. We just read in Exodus 33 that our God is abounding in loving kindness. It's even greater than loving kindness. abounding loving kindness. You know, great in grace and mercy. Uh, It tells us 26 times in Psalms 136 that his loving kindness is everlasting. What does that mean to a New Testament saint? Well, Romans 8, 35 through 39, there is nothing, not trial, not tribulation, not persecution, not famine, not sword can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then he goes on to say that, you know, things present or things to come, nor demons, nor Satan himself can keep you from the the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. God's loving kindness is truly everlasting. My life is eternally secure in the mighty hands of my great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, because lastly, his faithfulness is to all generations. Why? Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God what? Stands forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8. What God says he will accomplish, he'll bring to pass. That includes everything in the word, this word of truth that we call the Bible. <clears throat> all the prophecies, all the promises. God is faithful to perform his will and his word in every generation. We can take it to the bank because, again, it's not just what he does, it's who he is. God is not just good, he is goodness. He's not just loving, he is love. John 4, 4 8. 1 John 4, 8. He is not just faithful, he is faithfulness itself. That's what we believe about the name and person of God. And God is Immutable. That means, theologically, he is unchangeable. He's unchanging in his promise in what he performs. That's who he is. Therefore, he is the only one worthy of all our worship, and he will be the only one worthy of all our worship for all eternity. As we close, let me just read this again. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing, know that the Lord himself is God, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good, the loving, his loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. Hallelujah. It doesn't get any better than that. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you that you are all those things and you are so much more. You have done all those things and you've done so much more. You Lord, give us a heart of thanksgiving. Give us a heart of praise. Give us a heart of joy in you that transcends this world. Uh, evil world that transcends the sin, the trials, and the, the degradation that we go through in this planet as we live out this life. But Lord, keep our eyes and hearts focused on you because you are the living God who made us. You're the living God who sustains us. You're the living God who has given us his unbreakable word. And Lord, we take great comfort in all that. For We pray in Christ's name. Amen.